Hey everyone, welcome to M Collective, a new interview series focused on profiling 20-somethings who are making a name for themselves in the world. My name is Alex Portera, and I'm currently driving from New York City to Argentina, filming the adventure for a reality television show. At the moment, sitting on the riverbank of uh, somewhere in central Chile, setting up my campsite. Who I turn for the people who I bring on to M Collective are people who I turn to for inspiration. People who are pursuing their dreams or well into the process of uncovering them. In each interview, I'll try to understand how they do what they do, how they ended up where they are, and how we all as young people can use their stories to improve our own lives. In this interview, I'll be talking to Monas Khan, a friend of mine who's an interview producer on the award-winning interactive news program The Stream at Al Jazeera. Well, he was doing that at the time of the interview, but since I've been traveling, it's taken me a bit of time to put this interview together, uh, and now he's taken his talents to ESPN. This interview was a lot longer than I expected, but I also learned a lot more than expected. We get into a whole bunch of things. Of course, we talk about how Monas got his dream job as a journalist and producer, but we also talk about how he knew he wanted to do that job. It took him a long time to say out loud that he wanted to be a journalist, because his internal voices always told him he'd never be good enough. But we discuss that moment where he was finally able to overcome those voices and put it out into the open. We discuss the challenges that Monas faced as an American Muslim and teenager in the wake of 9-11 and how that shaped his personality and worldview. How Monas engages in debates using the oft-forgotten tool of precision to make his arguments, and also how Monas is able to continuously start and finish new creative projects, bringing so much energy and creativity into the world even though he never considers himself a hard worker. At times, Monas discusses issues very personal to him, which I found fascinating and informative. At other times, he goes on a tear, dropping gem after gem of useful insights that can change our lives. Either way, I really enjoyed my time with Monas, and I hope you do too. Okay, M Collective, today we are here with Monas Khan. Monas is one of the more interesting people you'll ever meet. A skinny dude with a big personality and an even bigger heart, we met back at Washington University in St. Louis, where Monas was a keystone of the school's creative community. Monas was everywhere on campus, always making things happen. He was awarded a social change grant to travel to Karachi, Pakistan, to provide education to impoverished students. He also founded Drop Knowledge, an organization that focused on spreading awareness of social issues through creative means. And then he continued on this path as an interviewer at the award-winning TV show The Stream at Al Jazeera. At The Stream, Monish uses his interviews to incite critical inquiry and compassion in his audience. He's a one-of-a-kind guy. So happy to have you here. Monish, what's going on? Alex, this is a really cool initiative that you're doing. M Collective, I'm proud to be a part of it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. and I think our audience has a whole lot to learn from you. Uh, and I think what would be great is just, I gave you a very, a very brief condensed background, uh, but would you be able to tell us a bit more kind of about, you know, growing up, college, and how you ended up as a, uh, as a producer of a TV show? Well, uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, for high school, I went to like a pre private school, and it was like very kind of, um, it was a very small place. It was full of people who were like high achievers, uh, and everyone kind of went to you know good schools all around the country. Not a lot of people stayed in Wisconsin, uh, which is a kind of a big distinction between where I went to high school and where I went to middle school. My public middle school, literally, almost no one left the state of Wisconsin. And when I went to a very small school, everyone left. And so um, I was just put in a place where I was challenged to compete with people who are you know like competing with not only just the best and brightest in Milwaukee, but the best and brightest all around the world. And so uh, I think that I kind of had, I, like, that helped nurture an ambition. It also helped um, get, provide me with a safe space to learn about, you know, um, uh, something that was kind of like a, um, like an important part of my high school career, I guess, is when I went to this conference called the People of Color Conference, and, and it was taking place in Seattle. And I was a senior in high school, and I learned all about um, not only diversity as we kind of generically understand it as like race or gender, but I learned it as like disability. You know, the able-bodied people and people with disabilities, the distinctions between, you know, the privileges that you access as an able-bodied person. Um, also, I learned about LGBT issues for the first time in my life, and I went back to school, and you know, it was so, 
it was so common to hear you're a gay, you're a fag at school in the hallways in the classrooms that it was not challenged. Like you could literally say this type of um, slur any in any space in the school and no one would say shut the fuck up because people were, were throwing these words around because they thought that gay people didn't go to our school. But what they didn't understand is the reason why gay people, we thought gay people didn't go to our school is because gay people didn't feel comfortable being gay in our school because we were calling each other slurs all the time, making it a negative experience or connotation. So when I went back to school, I made it kind of a, I had an opportunity to make a speech to my classmates on what, you know, what I learned in Seattle. And I told them that, like, we got to start using different language and not slurring against each other because we think it's, like, harmless, but it's not like that. And people should be comfortable to be who they are. And we got to just use different words. Like, if you're calling somebody gay because you think he sucks, then just say he sucks, you know? Or, like, just say, like, this is stupid. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to slur and you bring all this baggage and make this a not safe place for a part of our population just because you're being uh, lazy with your vocabulary. And so, you know, I think that just kind of started, like, uh... I think that just kind of started like uh, awareness on my part, a knowledge that I didn't have before, and kind of a sense of responsibility that I had to learn about these different cultures, and then I had to present this information to my student bodies. So at the People of Color Conference, Monis learned the broad impact that words, specifically imprecise words, can have on people, while also learning the importance of giving people the space to explore their ideas and their identities. Monis took these learnings with him to college and used them as the foundation for one of his major initiatives, Drop Knowledge. We're actually going to return to Monis' middle and high school experiences a bit later, but for now we're going to explore how he brought his learnings from the People of Color Conference to college, and how that helped him eventually land a job at Al Jazeera. When I went to college, I was fortunate enough to go to Washington University in St. Louis with you, Alex, and when I was there, I think that my experience in high school taught me that, like, yo, there's one thing to have a bunch of people who are very intelligent in a space, and have resources for their like academic benefit and there's another thing to take all these things that these people individually actually care about deep inside themselves and to create the space where they can access their passions rather than their academic interests solely like you know we go to WashU everyone wants to do what their parents want them to do or whatever or like just want to be successful so they they go to office hours and shit like that but where's like the office hours for the shit that you love like, people love, like, cooking and shit. They didn't have cooking classes at WashU. So, like, where's the office hours for, like, I want to get better at this thing that I love, like gardening or, like, helping the people, serving the community, uh, creating artwork, um, inciting critical inquiry through dialogue. Where were those spaces? So when I went to school, I, like, realized, also, I had been tripping on acid. I had an acid trip, and then it kind of set my shit straight. And uh, what it had me doing was just, like, thinking, I need to create this space so that people can engage with the things they love. How powerful and intelligent and talented are the people who I'm surrounded by, but how narrow are their abilities to express these, their capacity? And so I wanted to increase that. I wanted to help them say, yo, if I want to write a poem and I'm a biomedical uh, engineer, then I have a place where I can publish my stupid-ass poem. And so I created Drop Knowledge Magazine, and that experience of just creating space and making it more than a magazine, it was a magazine that was meant to influence decision-making. It was a magazine that was meant to be an introduction to the, the life that you were meant to live in the sense of you're going to read this stuff, you're going to get like on dope shit that you didn't even know about before, and then hopefully look inside of yourself and say, whoa, what kind of dope shit can I introduce people to? And then we also did parties like Live Art, which were meant to be a live manifestation of our values, which is creativity, collaboration, and community, and supporting our community, and all proceeds for all of our events always went to local charities, and, so, and I think that all of that energy kind of, uh, and kind of more of my gaining consciousness about the world around me and my experience as a Muslim, uh, my belief in kind of informing people and creating these safe spaces to learn and to grow, that really brought me towards working for Al Jazeera and kind of in the media, working in the media, trying to create stories, trying to incite critical inquiry. And, you know, when I was growing up, Al Jazeera was the best of the best at what they did. And so I remember being in college looking online and just randomly going Al Jazeera jobs on Google and looking at the jobs and thinking, I'm never going to fucking get this job. I was a junior in college. I gave up. I never thought about it again after that. And um, during my job interview with Al Jazeera, they asked me, you know, do you want to be a journalist? And honestly, 
I started crying in my Skype interview because I had never thought about it like that because I was so afraid to name my dream. I didn't want to say I wanted to be a journalist to myself because I didn't want to disappoint myself when I couldn't be a journalist because they didn't have journalism classes at WashU. They didn't have a journalism major. And so I wanted, you know, I when I was in college, like I applied to write for Time Magazine and they didn't even call me back. And, you know, I like was obsessed with Sports Illustrated and ESPN, the magazine, and I wanted to write for them and I wanted to be a journalist, but like I never vo vocalized that. And then when randomly I got this opportunity with Al Jazeera and they posed this question to me, it all came, all these feels came rushing together, pouring over me, and it was like, Monas, this has been the opportunity you've been waiting for your entire life. And for the first time, you can just let them know that, yes, you want to be a journalist. I mean, what were those feelings that came through? You know, it was just like, it was all those moments when you're sitting in the dark at night, and you're thinking about your future, and you're thinking about what you want the most, and you're thinking, uh, I can't do that. I don't have the skills. I don't have the talent. I don't have the experience. I've never done anything like that before. You know, you sit there and you really believe that you would be the best for it. You know, that it's yours to lose because you know who you are. But the sad thing is that you can't open yourself up to people so that they know what's inside of you. They don't know what I've been through. They don't know what's informing my confidence in myself. And so I gave up. And I said, this is not something that I can waste my time believing and deluding myself and like or de being delusional in the sense of like aspiring for this thing that's never going to happen and um, you know with journalism you do need experience you need bylines you need shit like that in order for people to trust you or whatever or for people to trust you to be able to do the work and like so I never got it twisted that I had that experience because I know I didn't and I started Drop Knowledge Magazine and it was a successful experience for me but I didn't I didn't kind of like confuse that with journalism it was more of a creative endeavor. I think it had a lot to do with journalism, but I don't think it was the same thing necessarily. And so I just was, and you know, when I was trying to get a job at Al Jazeera, I was just focused on being like a part of a TV show and a part of a team, a production team. So I didn't label it in my mind as like, yo, Mo, you're about to be a journalist. Like, that's what you're in line for. Um, that's what you're trying to get. But when they just posed it to me, I was like, whoa, this is literally the moment that I've been waiting for. And am I worthy? But it's not about whether I'm worthy. It's about how I'm grateful and blessed just to even have the opportunity, to have the FaceTime, to be sitting on Skype in the interview. And, um, I, you know, I think in that moment, what, some of these feelings are like, you know, it's kind of strange to say that you're humbled when something good is happening. You know, it kind of is a funny thing that, you know, people, they get into med school and they're like, I'm so humbled right now. It's like, nah, the time that I got humbled was when I was catfish. Like, that's a fucking... <laughs> Shitty things are humbling. You know, when I didn't get Teach for America, it was a pretty humbling experience because I wrote too many words in my essay. And that was humbling to me. But when I was sitting there and I was in the job interview, I was humbled because it was like, you know, I could have counted myself out at any moment. I could have said at any moment. And I wouldn't have been lying to myself. I could have said, Mo, this, ain't, this shit ain't for you. You're not cut out for it. You have no experience. Go get another line for shit to do. And when he hit me with that question, my boss, um, I was just like, you know what? Everything that was meant to be, you know, things that were meant for me were meant for me. Things that were not meant for me are not meant for me. And who am I to deny the opportunity that's being presented to me? Why, you know, you, you didn't have a label for it, but why is being a journalist important to you? Why was that something that you wanted to be? You, when I was in college, um, I did a thing for the Career Center, even though I was like the least employed person in the history of the world. Uh, and they asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was honest with them. You know, I don't like putting myself in lanes or saying I'm this or that. I'm more than that. I'm Monish. That's more, that's so much. You know, that's like what I'm like as a brother and, a, you know, like a son and like, you know, like how I am to my friends. Like, it's so much more than any of these titles. So what I said was I want to be a practitioner for the disenfranchised and an advocate for the voiceless. Because I believe in both those things. I believe in saying on behalf of those who ain't nobody listening to. And it's not a game. People listen to those of privilege. But where they don't listen to those who you ought to listen to. You know, and it's, it's a sad thing. But, like, who am I to deny that, that experience and that truth as well? So I knew I was privileged. So I said, I want to speak on behalf of people who people aren't listening to. And I want to show them that you ought to listen to these folks. Why? Why did you want that? 
because I knew that I had a gift of speaking and that when I speak, people listen, whether I like it or not. It gets me in trouble, but it gets me a lot of, you know, kind of like respect. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not going to sit here and deny it. So, and, you know, I have this great, um, Monus means the one who sympathizes. That's what my name means, the one who sympathizes. And so, like, I've always felt things very deeply inside of myself where I would be compelled to speak where others would not feel as if it was their responsibility. You know, I understand that it's not necessarily my responsibility, but it's not my responsibility maybe to you, but it's my responsibility to myself to speak um, because I have that privilege and people listen. And maybe not everybody listens, but enough people listen. And so, and it's making a difference in, in that, in raising awareness. And I knew it could help in its own capacity. Also, being a practitioner for the disenfranchised, I think, is an even more kind of important component because you can talk shit all day. You got to make the change. You got to do the thing that's different in order to change a person's lived experience. And so, you know, in my life right now as a journalist, I am that voice. But in my aspirations for my future, I want to be that practitioner. And I think that in different ways, I'm like trying to kind of gain more experience in how to be that practitioner without imposing, you know, my own cultural values on people who I'm trying to assist and making sure that the priority is on their story the way that they want to tell it, on living the life the way that they want to live it and to have, have me just be a person who's putting an effort to see that come to reality, you know, knowing my role. I think that journalism is one half of that. And I think that civic service is the other half. And I'm a journalist professionally, but I think I'm a participant. You know, that's what that's how I think of myself. And so it's about both those things. And Al Jazeera gave me the opportunity to get better at one of those things. But I look forward to the opportunity to get better at, at both of those things. And I think college helped me be that practitioner in a few different ways. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, I can continue to kind of be the type of person I want to be when I grow up. Okay, we're going to rewind for a second now to understand exactly how Monas ended up at Al Jazeera, because he didn't go there straight from college. After college, Monas spent one year participating in the leadership development program Quoro in Pittsburgh, doing various types of civic projects. At Quoro, Monas really learned what it took to be a leader and also how to constructively take feedback from others, one of the more challenging but important things we as young people in or entering the workforce can do. Um, there's an amazingly unusual and strange and surreal and um, at times debilitating and difficult and strenuous opportunity to learn about kind of the ins and outs of society, literally. Uh, one of the projects that we did we spend a lot of time on were learning about the sewage waste process in Pittsburgh, how um, antiquated all of the technology was and the, the enormous effort that it would take for the local community to work together to basically fix their pipes. One thing, you, you used a few words to describe that experience that I think say a lot about you. Um, you said the experience, you know, you said it was challenging, you said it was, you know, it, it was scary, you said it was debilitating, uh, and a debilitating experience. That's not something that a lot of people seek out, want, uh, you know, they, debilitation is a, a terrifying word. You know, it's like I had to learn not only how to be effective in dealing with these public policy concerns, but also working in a team where everyone is watching your every move. And then we have feedback circles where people tell you how much you suck for yawning, you know, or for looking out the window during a boring-ass meeting. And for a 19, or like you know, a 22-year-old who had never thought about these things, who wasn't very uh, aware of body language and the difference that it can make in a room and the way that it can affect other people's energy, basically learning what the word leadership actually means and what it looks like, um, these things were very difficult. And I, had, I learned a lot about myself. I thought that I was a very good leader coming in, in the sense that I had leadership experience that I was proud of. And I learned through that experience that I had a very small part of the criteria of what it means to actually be an effective leader. And um, I'm just grateful to have learned the distinction. That doesn't mean every day I am my best. That's People who work with me every day would tell you if they were honest about it that I'm not. But at least it lets me know, okay, this is how I can get better, this is what I can improve on. 
it gave me kind of like a criteria. I'm grateful for that. But, you know, learning these things is a brutal, horrible, regrettable, you know, you never want to fail. But unfortunately, that's like how you kind of are able to put it back together and uh, raise a standard. And so it was all of those things. It was surreal. It was debilitating. It, and it, it was endured. Over the course of the quarrel process, Monus learned how much work he had to do to become the person that he wanted to be. Now Monus lives with a new person. Through those feedback sessions, there's a new Monus that lives inside his head. It's like I have a new person who lives with me inside of my head. And he basically, anything that comes out of my mouth, he tells me everything that I'm not saying, every reason why I'm wrong. Uh, if I'm proud of myself and I'm sharing that accomplishment with someone, he'll tell me every reason why I don't have to be proud of myself. If I um, am making a claim in an argument about public policy, he'll tell me everything that I'm omitting from my argument. And I'm grateful that he's here, but I had to learn over the last three years how to live with someone like that. And, and it's an, it's, you know, I think that we can't have too high expectations of ourselves because we're all human beings. And, you got, and sometimes it's easiest to hear the one piece of talking shit and think that's the only thing anybody ever said. You gotta remember everything that people are saying, everything that everyone is saying, so that you don't you don't feel like in your mind that all the criticism is so outsized. The criticism needs to be put in context. That allows it to be kind of like internalized a lot easier. But you gotta, you know, that doesn't make it any easier to hear it, but it does make it easier to do something about it. And I try to think, you know, remind myself what you know other people like my parents and other people have told me is like, you're better off after than you were before. So even though you feel like you suck a lot more because you know a lot of ways you suck that you never thought about, mm -hmm. you're actually better for that. And, I'm, and I believe it too. So when I walk into work the next day, you know, I believe that I'm better. And who's mad at me for being better at my job? No one. Okay. So there was something though that really surprised me uh, and I wanted to touch on when you were talking about, you know, the critical, the critical monist that is evaluating everything that you're saying, um, which you, you have a lot to say, and you have a lot of really interesting perspectives, um, and you're putting yourself out there all the time, uh, whether that's through, through your formal job on the stream, whether it's in one-on-one -on -one conversations, or on social media. Um, I mean, recently you've been extremely active in, in kind of talking about issues that affect you, and um, I'm curious to like hear how you how you put yourself out there and deal with the criticism when you're when you're making arguments that are provocative, that are um, opinionated, that you firmly believe in, that other people may completely disagree with or may try and take your argument and and maybe change it for their own purposes. How do you deal with that? You know, it's it's a very dangerous game. You know, and honestly, it's uh, I, Alex. I wonder if if you feel like this, um, you know, from your perspective, because from mine, you know, as a Muslim, as a, a Pakistani American male, I feel like entering into a lot of these conversations, it's uh, I have to almost preface everything I say by I, I God bless America. I'm a citizen. I love this country. Like just, I'm about to talk some shit right now, but like. Don't paint me as the wrong guy. Like, I'm just here for constructive criticism. Like, you know, isn't that why we're all here? To make this place better? Well, yeah. What that, mean, what that means to me is that what I've learned, you know, through experience, that means failing, is that precision is my best friend. And precision is not the tool that is used by anyone who is promoted and participating in these conversations. And this is an unfortunate reality because on network television, the only thing people of color are asked to do is defend their right to exist as people of color. You sit there the whole time and you have to answer stupid questions like, do you support ISIS? It's like, can't we just talk about the ways people's lives are affected by bigotry en masse? The ways that people's lives are affected by war? Can't we just talk about the human elements of what's happening and agree that we're not trying to impose that type of living reality on anyone unnecessarily, anyone who's not guilty of a crime, any innocent person, we can all agree on these things in principle, but in practice, absolutely not. But as I've noticed that when people speak truth with precision, 
and it relates to the personal experience of other human beings, then you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. But what does that mean? You need to understand the experience of other human beings. Basically, I've adapted my participation in these public conversations. I have private conversations beforehand to explore my blind spots of what I'm saying, explore the things I'm not understanding, see all the ways in which people are going to morph what I'm saying as basically being an apologist for some type of totally condemnable, outrageous, whatever, because I'm advocating for a more humane way of living. So if I say that, if I come after people on an individual level and attack them, then what am I doing? Because I'm not, and what I've had to learn is individually, I've literally had to overcome my anger and my frustration with individual people. I'm not mad at nobody. I'm literally not mad at nobody. Unless you sit in a chair where everyone gives you attention and you're paid millions of dollars and you're abusing that privilege, I'm not mad at you. People can say ignorant shit on an individual level and they can say that shit to my face and I hope I respond by saying, God bless you. I love you. Like, you're going to be firing this ignorant stuff at me because you think you know who I am and you're putting words in my mouth. But I understand that where you're coming from is a particular perspective. You are only your experiences. And if you have a narrow set of experiences, then why should I think you should be capable of something more than that? I'm a person of color. It took me 25 years to understand what that even means to make sense of it all. So people who are new to this conversation, I've had to learn. I have to have more patience with them at an individual level. I have to be more forgiving in my rhetoric. So I have a question, though, um, about about that last thing, and I, and I want to move on, but for you, how do you, I mean, from the what you just said, right at the end there, it's like you're kind of dealing it, dealing with allegations, attacks people are making um, by, like, using it as a way to argue back, like, how, how does, how, what else do you feel, and how do you deal with that? I mean, it's humiliating, you know, when some, like, in the wake of a terrorist attack, someone says that, oh, like, I don't know, they attack, they attack... I mean, let me just provide a perspective. Um, you know, my family is very devout Muslims. You know, I am a devout Muslim. I love God. And uh, for, for, you know, when people say, where are the moderate Muslims? Well, if I'm super devout, do I still get to be moderate? If I'm super committed to justice in this world, in ensuring it in this world for everyone, am I moderate anymore? You know, it's like if I'm an extremist for love, what did, where does that leave me? And it's just, it's, and it's humiliating when people say, like, oh, to be critical of racism and to be critical of warfare and to be critical of the, the millions of ways in which brown people's lives are devalued and destroyed because it's, like, per perpetuated by, you know, this country, which I also love. I mean, it's, it's like, I'm just trying to make this country a better place. It's kind of confusing to me. How do you deal um, with that? I mean, this this has been over, it's been 14 years, 13 years of the same thing. I had to, I had to, I was called a terrorist when I was like, from the, like when I was 14 every day in a new school, that was a prep school with a bunch of kids I didn't know that I didn't fit in with because I went to like a public school in a rural place, really small. These were people who were really rich. I was called a terrorist every single day. I didn't know anybody. Girls didn't like me. I mean, this was a fucking horrible part of my life. Like, you know, I was ugly. I'm still ugly. I was hella ugly. Like, I mean, I weighed nothing now. I weighed less then. I was, like, so small. I was, like, you know, I was, like, going. I didn't have as much confidence. I wasn't good at things. And then on top of that, you know, that's just racist. That hurts. It, and it has nothing to do with you. Also, let's complicate it by the fact that my family, personally, you know, people in my family have died because of terrorist attacks. So, and you see this operating every single day in every level. Everyone's blaming you. And I'm what? I'm 14 years old sitting in the middle of Wisconsin. I've never been to New York City before. I, I never even knew that the World Trade Center was a thing. I never even have ever thought about New York City. I had never thought about these guys who flew their planes. Like I never thought about these guys. I had never thought about the Taliban. I had never thought about any of this stuff before. And now it's like I'm inseparable from it. And it's, I'm just a human being living a solitary life. You gotta not let other people's hate make you hateful. How do you because do I that? know that when other people are sh kind of imposing and projecting these types of things on me, their perspective and bigotry, in a sense, 
is more insidious to them than it could be in any way when imposed on me. It destroys them more than it destroys me. So why should I ever let it destroy me? Because I know that if I'm really good at what I'm trying to do, then they're not going to feel the way that they felt before because I can speak to them as equals. But I need to not fall victim to the same fear and the same you know, distaste and the same animosity. I have to not fall victim to it. I'm a human being, so I will. But when I'm trying to do my best, I know what that looks like. And that means looking at somebody who's going to spit in your face and say, got love for you. I don't know where this stuff is coming from. Do you want to talk about it? Like, is something going on in your life? You know, this comes from, this kind of nasty stuff comes from other places. Can't make it about you. Can't let it reflect on you. You know the truth of who you are as an individual. It's important to learn that other people, the way that they see you, it says more about them than it does you. So don't take it for everything that it is. It's a delicate thing. It, I mean, you just talked about all of the crazy challenges, prejudices, just issues beyond what a normal teenager goes through. A normal teenager's life sucks anyway, and you had to deal with all this other shit. Um, but you just said something which is interesting, and it's, you know, you said you can't let, now, as an adult, as someone who's still dealing with this stuff, you can't let it, you know, you can't let it affect you because you know who you are. And, and so you won't let that affect you because, it, because you know, you, you figured that out. Um, I think that's a challenge for a lot of people. I think getting that understanding, once you get there, there's, there's a, a power to it. There's a real power to it. But a lot of people our age, a lot of millennials, don't have that full understanding of who they are. I mean, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it just depends on what are you out here for. You know, I always like, felt like I, in order for me to be happy, I needed to demonstrate a commitment to justice and equality. Um, and in how? that sense... How did you know that? I think, you know, honestly, it just has always been... You know, money has never really mattered to me. I never like thought of having... I don't give a fuck about anything. I don't give a fuck about having a job. I don't care about anything. I only care about doing everything that I can with the unique gifts and perspectives that I've been blessed with to just make this world better, a more humane dwelling place. I'm not the first person who's kind of committed to this particular thing. I mean, I got a lot to offer. If I'm working 40 hours a week for the man, that's 40 less hours that I can help other people live more fulfilling lives. You are out there hustling all the time for what you believe in and, and what you want in this world. You told us a little bit about, you know, what life was like in high school. Like, when, when did you start hustling for this? Start shaping the world in the way that you want it to be shaped? You know, I was really fortunate when I was in the second grade um, that my elementary school had this thing where if you wrote, uh, like, something and you put page numbers to it, they would type it up as a book and, you know, you would have a hard cover or a soft cover. They could lay it out in all these different ways. It could be a picture book. It could be a um, chapter book, narrow, long. Uh, and then you could, they could leave space for illustrations. They won't leave space for illustrations. And when I was a kid, I wrote, like, literally, like, 30 of those books. Me too. <laughs> yeah, and it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that every school across the country can have access because it's a relatively simple process. And, like, I, you know, what it taught me was that I can literally close my eyes want something, and then open my eyes, and next thing you know, it's there. Our imagination comes for free. It's kind of this crazy thing. You don't need anything in the world to have one. And we dream and want, and like we see things, and we think, oh, that's cool, but it could be cooler if it was like this. And uh, we actually have this crazy ability to do and create and bring all those things. And so when I was in college and I realized how much money there was around and available and how much resources were available. And I also saw in college, I saw a lot of intelligent people who I felt like were, you know, going to class because their parents really wanted to get up a particular type of major, a particular type of degree, a particular type of grad school. Going to parties because their friends wanted to go to a particular type of place, identify with a particular type of people, and, you know, a particular type of lifestyle. 
But I really felt like everyone was looking for love and passion, and I really didn't feel like there were ways for us to encourage one another to like define what that actually meant. Like we had all these predefined ways, that, and it was really easy for us. But we had such high aptitude. I wanted to build capacity for people and, and show people like, you know, I I'm so bad at everything, and even I can do dope shit. So like, you you're like a fucking genius, biomed, whatever, architecture, whatever, like business, whatever. All these skills and knowledge and technical expertise. When you bring your passion, your creativity, your imagination, and your education to the table, what are the millions of things that are possible? And so, tribe knowledge was just that exercise. Um, I've always been fortunate to be surrounded by creative people. You know, people who really don't mind after they're given responsibilities, adding a few others for no reason, doing shit for no reason. That's something that I believe in a lot. Um, no one asked me to make music. No one asked me to write a short film. No one asked me to do colored commentary. No one asked me to do drive knowledge. But I did it because I wanted to do it because I thought it would, I, I would feel better about things. I would have something to watch. I would have something to read that I thought would be cool. And so just that creative capability, that means everything to me. That's the most important thing to me. And um, there's money everywhere, especially on college campuses. And there are resources everywhere. There are creative people everywhere. And the thing is, most people, they don't have outlets. So creating one ain't hurting nobody. You know, this is a good thing. We need more outlets. Um, but there's a step that you mentioned. You said you see some, you know, you close your eyes you and you see something, and boom, it's there. It's not there, right? You can see it in your head. And the people that, you know, are our age, are out there, you know, whether they're doing awesome things or not, everyone has amazing ideas. Everyone you talk to, if you get them going, everyone I know has really great ideas for products, services, books, movies, things that could exist. But the boom, it's there part is, is what trips people up. They don't, you know, they don't know how to get started. And a lot of the fears you mentioned, fears of failure, fears of just, you know, not doing a great job, just and just motivation in general stop a lot of people. And you're someone who who I'm sure it's stopped sometimes, but you're still putting stuff, creative, amazing things out into the world all the time, and you know people who are doing that. So how do you go from that idea to actually making a product? I mean, it's definitely literally one foot in front of the other. I guess it's like I don't look at it as work. I look at it as fun. You know, I, I think that, Alex, I'm just grateful that you refer to my hustle in the sense that I wouldn't, I would never refer to anything that I've ever done as a hustle or like, you know, or something like hard work is not, I would never use hard worker ever in the first 1,000 words that I would use to refer to myself because it's not really how I think about work. Um, I don't, like, I don't, I can't even remember the last time I think, oh, I worked hard in the sense of like, I've done things where I have had to spend a lot of time on them, but I didn't look at it like that. I don't, I don't look at things as like working hard or the difference between me doing it and not doing it was all the hard work I put in. It was just thinking about it and thinking that it was cool and like wanting to see it and literally just wanting to have it in my hands. And also, honestly, the answer to your question is everyone around me. If it was up to me, you would have never seen anything that I ever was a part of. You would have never seen any of it. It's all about the faith that other people have in me, the support that I get, you know, the people who collaborate, the people who sit down and do the hard work, and like the people who uh, allow me to take time out of their schedule, the people who show up, the people who buy in, those are the reasons why we see everything that we've seen, and that's the only reason. It has nothing to do with me. Because if it was up to me, shit would not happen. I'm a lazy motherfucker. I don't do shit most of the time. And so I'm just so grateful. You know, it's just like, it's not something I can anticipate. It's not something that I can ask for. It's just something I'm blessed to have and something I don't take for granted. I think one thing I wouldn't discount is that there's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that these people are always around you. It's not a coincidence that you always find yourself surrounded by people who are creative, people who are, you know, putting amazing things out in the world, who are having these collaborations, who are creating. It's not, you know, it's not a coincidence. You're, you know, you're around them, and to go back to the very beginning, you said you were smoking on a couch, and you met Mike, who then 
got you this job which you have today. Here's Monas from another part of the interview talking about the moment he met his friend Mike who would help him get his job at Al Jazeera. I was at WashU. I was blazing it up at one of my friend's houses. I had never been to his house before. Mm-hmm. Sitting on a couch, a man I had never met, my good friend Michael Hopper. It was the first time I had ever met him. It was our senior year. And the next time I saw Michael, we talked, and I learned that he was from Milwaukee. The next time I saw him was that summer in Milwaukee. And uh, we met at the mall. We, we, well, we ran into each other at Banana Republic at the mall. I asked him what he was doing. He was going to actually be one of the first interns ever hired for the stream on Al Jazeera English, which has now been around for more than three years and has won a ton of awards. And Mike has won some of those awards too. He told me he was going to start an internship there. I told him, oh my God. I was shaking. I was quaking. Um, and I was just like, I would do anything for this type of opportunity. I'm going to be doing a fellowship for a year, but let's stay in touch. And Mike was just an amazing um, partner in helping me uh, you know, get the internship, preparing me for it. And more importantly, when I got to D.C. to begin, he prepared me and taught me how to be a professional at the highest level. And I have not met many professionals as amazing um, at what they do and the leaders that he is. But I think with that example and that support, I, it would have been very hard for me to fail. And that's something that uh, I'm very grateful for. He came down from the heavens. God sent him. And with the J. And <laughs> he came down. He blew the horn. And he gave, he handed my, me my dream job. Like, that's crazy. I would sit at night when I was in college looking at aljazeera.com for jobs and thinking, I'm never, ever, ever going to be able to work here. And now I get to do, like, I mean, if you would ask me three years ago, Monus, do you think this is cool? I would have shit my pants. I mean, like, my head would have exploded. <laughs> I would have been like, this is the coolest thing I could ever imagine. But I will say, Alex, that I'm good at exploiting the void. And the void is that there are all these talented people who all want to put themselves into something for fun, you know? And the problem is, is that no one has an idea or no one has something that they're willing to all come around or kind of like you're – no one like engages in that initial conversation of, hey, like I just thought about this thing. I, I finished production on a short film yesterday that I had written and directed with my friend Ozzy. And the only reason why we started that in November of 2013 – was because we were at work and it was 6, 7 p.m. one day and he walks next to me and he sits down and he says, I was at a bar and there was a silent film on black and white and I was like, this is so cool. I want to do a silent film. And we just sat down and we started there. And we ended production yesterday on a silent film. We, like, we just don't engage in those conversations. Like I give a fuck about silent films. I don't give a fuck about silent films. I don't give a fuck about short films. But my friend wanted to do one and I thought it was a really cool creative exercise and I just kept on going with it. And we ended up writing it, we ended up directing it, and we ended up finishing it. Production. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it's just like, it's about all about exploitation. You know, I, I, have the, I learned this thing when I was in college that if you walk into a room and you know what you want, then you're going to get it because no one knows what the fuck they want. Everyone is always sitting around wondering, what do I want, what do I want, what do I want? If you're the guy who just knows what he wants, no one's standing in your way. Everyone's like, oh, you know what you want. Go, go ahead, cut in line, man. I'm sitting here looking at the menu, all confused about what toppings I want. If you know what you want, you know, it's, it, makes it, it makes life a lot easier. And so I'm a big believer in if you're in that place, hit people with that because they ain't got shit going on. You know, even if they have their own ideas, working on a project with you can help them refine their idea and learn how to execute it, and then you can help with them. You know, let me know what you think about this, but I found that since I've started... There's been a few articles that I wrote that I, that I put out there. I created a blog, at, you know, some videos and stuff. When you start just putting a little bit out there, maybe it's just one article, maybe it's one, one song, maybe it, little things that you do, you know, start to, start to add up. And people start to notice you and people start to think about you. And I found that the more that I do, the more things come to me. And, you know, these aren't perfect things. These aren't grand projects that I'm working on, but little things. And you were talking about, you know, you go out to and you talk to 50 people and you're talking to them about all these different ideas and you're telling them about it and they're, you know, from those conversations alone, people are feeding you new ideas and they're, maybe they're saying, oh, I know how to help you and oh, I can't help you but I know this person who knows how to do this thing that, you know, you don't know how to do yet and they would be a great person to contact and just by, you know, just moving at all on some of these things, they start to happen and they start to take on life.
Literally, uh, you just like kind of, you know, you build this little uh, car and then you blow it and it'll just start picking up steam. You know, you do the first step. That's why it's one step at a time. But sometimes you're fucking walking on a treadmill all of a sudden. You, there's so much moving that you can't stop moving. People are coming to you, hey, are you free on Thursday so we can talk about this? And you're like, I mean, yeah, I don't do shit ever. <laughs> and sure. And then next thing you know, you're working on it. You're making progress. Um, I'm just a big believer on putting things on my calendar. And that just, and, you know, and I give myself a lot of credit. If I put, like, we worked on the silent movie for over a year. If I put it on my calendar once a week, I'm like, damn, look at me. I'm doing tons of shit. It might only be three hours of talking shit with my homie. Uh-huh. But I feel great, you know. It's like a, it's just like another thing. And and what happens after 15 months? You you you're done, and it's just a cool experience. And like, it just means so much. And you and you worked with all these people that came out of the woodwork and helped you, and you didn't even know them before the experience started. And you get to meet people and work with them and learn about them. And this is only the beginning, you know. Like one of like I don't know. People move and they're moving everywhere. You know, I might one of the guys I'm collaborating on this movie with. He started it with me. He's leaving to go to Vietnam to be a foreign correspondent. Now, just because he's leaving to go to Vietnam, you know, oh, collaboration's over. No, it's not. We got ideas flowing. You know, for the rest of our lives, we'll be able to work together. Um, the world is very connected now more than it's ever been. You know, so if I literally wanted to write something with him, we could do that just over the internet and just using Google Docs and stuff like that. So, so it's just an amazing time to remain connected. And people can go, but them moving forward in their careers is a benefit to everyone. You know, in a sense, like the rising tide, you know, lifts all boats. This is when when one of us, as a young person, is successful, we are all more successful for it. I I always used to get a fear that there are only so many chairs, like uh, musical chairs, and so like if if you were successful, Alex, like you took my chair. Now I don't get a chair anymore. Fuck that. If I if I fucking get a chair, I'm building five chairs next to me. A lot of people are kind of. They see, yeah, they see someone up there, and they see you building a chair, but they don't think it's for them, and and that's you know, but it could be, it could, it's for anyone, you know, it's you you said you build five chairs that when you build a new one, that could be for anyone, right? You know, it's a, it kind of comes down to what motivates me at the most base level, you know, when I was in high school, I was a foreign kid who was just called terrorists all the time. My fa- I went to a prep school. My family got in on scholarships, so we weren't even rich like that. You know, I had a, you know, I had never had a girl. Like all these things that made me feel insecure about myself. I weighed 108 pounds, which isn't that much of off of what I weigh right now. You know, so I always felt so insecure all the time. I always felt like, man, I'm literally the biggest loser that I know. I'm literally this. You know, when you're in high school, everyone's lifting weights, and I'm like looking around, I'm like literally the smallest person I've ever met in my entire life. This is so weird. I'm so weird, and I'm not like these other kids. And my parents are crazy, and like I don't leave my house, and I never hang out with friends, and I never go to these parties. But then I realize, like, I can do all the crazy shit and dope shit that I want to do, even if I suck. Like me sucking doesn't stop me. So it really just light lit a fire in me. Is like, whoa, man, maybe I can show all these people in my school that like you can just be a loser, you can be a piece of shit, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good at anything, good looking, good at anything. You don't even have to have a lot of friends. But you can still do everything and manhandle everything that you want. And I think like I, if I can leave, you know, kind of have an impact, it's only for all these people who always looked at themselves and thought, man, I suck at this or I'm not good at that. Yeah, I suck at a lot of things. But that doesn't stop me from giving it a go or giving it a shot. And I mean, we surprise ourselves. We ought to give ourselves the space to surprise ourselves. And so, you know, this is what motivates me. I just want people to, if, honestly, if people are seeing me and thinking that I'm doing dope shit, it's like, man, I'm the biggest loser on the planet. I wish people would get to know me better. It would literally make them feel like, oh, my God, if he can do it, I can fucking do anything. Like, if I want to go to the Mars, give me a few years because if this bastard is doing what he's trying to do, I'm going to make it there. And so I think that's the most important thing. You know, I just, I cannot emphasize enough how big of a loser I am. I love playing video games. I love doing nothing. I love yeah being a t- just being total piece of shit with no contribution to the world. This is one of my favorite pastimes. It's a bad habit that will probably never leave me, but it also doesn't stop me. How crazy is that? The world is such a crazy place. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and I think really really inspiring 
tough to hear. I mean, it's not it's not easy to just be like I'm a fucking loser and I because I yeah. I mean, I just suck at so many things that I think are cool. That's actually why I think that it you know like in terms of my personality, what I bring to making things, I kind of bring like a like an endless and endless energy and fascination. Like just a whoa, that's so crazy. Because I do think it's crazy. Because I could never do anything like that. You know, I like can't draw pictures and shit like that. I just can't do anything cute. You know, I like try, try to be cute all the time. It just doesn't work. But, but it, it's okay. I know I'm I'm like yeah, I'm an absolute loser too, but when you just <laughs> when you but right, it's you accept that, you're like, I there's stuff that I'm gonna suck at and I don't know if this is gonna work. But you know, who cares? You know, it's like I'm a loser, so let's just see what happens. Yeah, at the um, end of the day, you gotta do things for yourself. Right. Because it's it's like if you look at it like, oh, if I do this for someone else, are they gonna like it? Yeah, maybe they won't. So maybe you shouldn't do it. Right. But if you're doing it for yourself, you know whether you're gonna like it or not. You don't have to play all these guessing games. When we we just gotta listen to what our spirit is telling us. And a lot of times that that volume is, you know, kind of distorted by everything everyone else is telling us. It's not that we shouldn't listen to everybody else. It's, hey, we always listen to everybody else. How about listening to ourselves? Great. I totally, totally, totally agree. Okay. I think I think it's time to wrap up. Monus, um, first of all, thank you for all the time that you spent spent over here. Thank you for opening yourself up and sharing um, sharing so much it's really, it's, I think you've had some amazing stories to tell you about. You have an amazing background, and you're doing some amazing things now. Um, you know, I came in here with an idea of kind of what I was expecting and got a lot more out. Um, and I'm excited to kind of rewatch this interview and, and hear your words again. Um, but a, a consummate hustler and, and a fierce individual. Uh, I want to end with one quote that I found that you made um, that I think really captures a big part of the essence of, of what I'm trying to do here with the M Collective, which was, you can empower people, can only create the conditions for people to empower themselves. Um, and I think sage, sage advice that you said in college, um, and really amazing. And so uh, hopefully people will, will hear those words, and we've created the conditions and they can get out there and start doing something. Absolutely, and Alex, this is an amazing place to start. Um, the, all the hard work that you're doing with the M Collective and just following your heart and seeing it through, it means a lot to me, and I'm very grateful for being a part of it. And best of luck, and good luck on Saturday. I'll see you out in New York. Yeah, I'll see you on, I'll see you on Saturday. All right, high five. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. Have a great rest of the day, Alex. You too. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening to this M Collective interview with Monas Khan. I hope you got as much out of it as I did, and I'll see you next time. Get up, 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 get up,